The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we are listening to our live online journal club, which took place on September 30th. Here it is. Welcome to EVRMA Global's first live online journal club. My name is Emre Seli. I am the chief scientific officer of EVRMA Global and a professor at Yale School of Medicine. Uh, EVRMA Global distinguishes itself by allocating a large portion of its resources to research and innovation, and we focus our research on translational studies. Our aim is to have a positive impact on our patients' outcomes. Within the past eight months, despite COVID-19, we have maintained a high level of productivity in research, and we continue to organize our findings into publications. Due to the pandemic, communication between researchers, clinicians has been difficult and there seems to be no end in sight. Therefore, we decided to make an effort to connect with our colleagues worldwide. This journal club, which is the first one organized by EVRMA, is part of that effort. We will follow this with bi-monthly journal clubs and weekly podcasts for the duration of the pandemic. For this first journal club, we chose to focus on pre-implantation genetic testing, as it is a rapidly evolving aspect of assisted reproduction. We will discuss three recent manuscripts published by EVRMA and its collaborators. The first two manuscripts discuss how a pre-implantation genetic test should be validated. The third manuscript takes a completely different approach. It uses our clinical and diagnostic capabilities, and it aims to better understand common unifluids. I will moderate this journal club with Andres Reig, who is a physician and an OBGYN specialist, and he is the new media editor of EVRMA Innovation. Andres, please go ahead. Thank you so much, Dr. Sally. Um, welcome everyone to our Journal Club. Before we start, we have an important announcement we're very, very excited about. We're launching our very own podcast. It's called Fertilipod, and it will feature weekly episodes covering the latest research in the field of reproductive medicine and some interesting coffee talks with the world leaders in our field. If you can't stay with us for the full event today, or if you know somebody who couldn't join us and wanted to listen, this Journal Club will actually be available as a podcast episode uh, starting tomorrow. Just look up for Telepod or EVRMA on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, during the next hour, our panelists are going to present and discuss three recent and very interesting publications, as Dr. Sally outlined, and they're all related to the field of genetics and in particular of pregestational genetic testing. We've invited to cover this five very distinguished guests for, for this event. We have Dr. Richard Scott, who's the co-founder and CEO of EVRMA Global and a professor at Thomas Jefferson University. Dr. Juan Garcia Velasco, director at EV Madrid and professor at Juan Carlos University. We have Dr. Dagan Wells, who's the director of Genome Genetics, a state-of-the-art lab specializing in genetic testing and um, related to infertility treatments and pregnancy. 
He's also an associate professor at the University of Oxford. We have Dr. Marta Shabazi, who's the group leader at the MRC Lab of Molecular Biology in Cambridge University. And Dr. Julia Kim, who's currently a third year fellow at the RMA New Jersey Thomas Jefferson University REI program. Thank you all for joining us today, especially those of you who are in Europe and it's way past midnight over there already. Um, the way this will work is basically, we'll have each paper be presented first and then we'll have that be discussed by two of our experts. And then after that, we'll have time to answer some of the questions from our audience. If you, as an audience member, have any questions, you can send them through the little Q&A button on the, on the bottom of the screen. And we will look at those questions and we'll try to answer as many as we can uh, after each paper presentation. With that being said, let's get started. Um, our first paper is gonna be presented by Dr. Scott. It's titled, Key Metrics and Processes for Validating Embryo Diagnostics. And it was published in Fertility and Sterility in July, 2020. Dr. Scott, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much. Um, this is a, uh, from my perspective anyway, an interesting article because it's really, it's an opinion. It's a, it's a compilation of ideas that have been uh, shared by many people around the world for, for many years to help us deal with a, a chronic, uh, chronic issue, which is how do we really uh, discuss or present uh, IVF or ART outcomes in a way that makes it very reproducible, very um, um, unspinnable, not subjective, so that we can actually get uh, a genuine, accurate idea of how what we're doing as a profession and whether or not uh, a given approach to treatment actually uh, produces good outcomes. I think that um, most of us would acknowledge that uh, in just an enormous amount of effort has gone into producing SART and the, the CDC reports, the league tables in various countries. Um, and, and they have all the common noble goal of talking about outcomes. If you go down this road, if you attempt uh, to conceive through ART, how likely are you to conceive? And while this was relatively simple when SART was born in, in the 1980s, uh, the reality is today it's complicated because there's embryo banking and there's uh, elective freezing and there's delayed transfers for a variety of reasons. Um, and there's also uh, have been a tendency to have us as clinical scientists, probably everyone listening to this podcast, I'd be very interested in things like fertilization rates and development rates to day three and blastulation rates and uh, et cetera, et cetera. When in fact, most patients uh, don't come to us and say, you know, I'd really like to know what my uh, 2PN conversion rate is or, or what my blastulation rate is. Uh, they wanna know whether or not they're going to deliver. And so uh, and I worked with uh, Kate the Fisher uh, and we, we really tried to simplify all the different things that were out there into something that would be concrete and reproducible and would be uh, beyond uh, any subjective interpretation, just would be the same everywhere. And so we, we really had three su uh, superior, three, three important metrics that we thought were uh, the, the foundation and then possibly a fourth one uh, worth tagging on. Uh, the first one is, do you get to transfer? And in the past, uh, SARD and others have divided this in. Do you get canceled? Do you go to retrieval? And, and is there anything to transfer? And it potentially, it could be different for our low, low stems and uh, mini stems and all those things. And the reality is all of those distinctions may be important to us clinically, but, but not to the patient. Anything you put in a summary table, of course, you will always interpret in the context of an individual patient's outcomes. 
certainly somebody who has a normal follicle count and a good AMH and a low FSH, you're going to counsel differently than someone of the exact same age who has none of those things. And so um, in an effort to simplify it, uh, you take all comers. Do you get something to transfer? And there will be a dropout rate because some will get canceled. Obviously, it'll change with age groups. And some will have all their embryos arrested or, or maybe failed for it and, and nothing to, uh, available to even culture. And others will uh, be aneuploid. If you're doing PGTA, you're going to have higher implantation rates because you've selected euploids. That's been demonstrated many times. Uh, but interestingly enough, you may also have fewer people getting transferred. So you have to have some way of, in fairness, you have to have some way of accounting for that within the system. And one very simple way to do it is if you're in your age group, you break them down by age groups, what's the probability if you start down this road that you're going to get to transfer? Uh, so that's index one. It's a finite number. It's calculated by saying the number of people who had an embryo to transfer divided by the number of people who started treatment, and that's it. So uh, not subjective, easily interpreted, and, and easily interpreted by our patients. The second uh, parameter I think is by far and away the most important, and the one that might uh, cause the most concern from colleagues, uh, which is sustained implantation rate. And so uh, sustained implantation rate means if you transfer the embryo, remember that's where we got to through parameter one, now we have an embryo, we're gonna transfer it, what's the probability that it delivers? I don't really care about positive pregnancy tests and I don't think our patients care very much about them. Uh, and even clinical pregnancies, uh, and we'll have some data in the second talk to talk about how often those occur and our losses uh, are, are devastating to the patient and not helpful. So those shouldn't, we shouldn't be getting credit for those. We shouldn't be representing those as, as outcomes that are favorable, when in fact for the patients, uh, unfortunately they are not favorable. Um, and so how do you do that? You talk about the, the percentage of embryos that are transferred who are delivered as a baby a live-born infant. Um, this also takes away the game of doing multiple embryo transfers, right? So if you put one back and get one baby, it's 100%. If you put two back and get one baby, it's 50%. Uh, and so uh, for patients who want, or centers, who want to do multiple embryo transfers, you can, you can easily calculate what the outcomes will be. And there are great data to demonstrate that, that the first and second embryo essentially have the same implantation rate. If you want to know the any delivery rate, calculate the failure rate, multiply the two, uh, you know, if it's one to nine fail, um, I'm just making that up, or one in three fail, then if you have put two back, it's going to be one in nine fail. Um, and then uh, two out of three, so four nights will have twins and four nights ultimately would have a singleton. So those are, you can easily do the multiple embryo transfer game if you want to, but it encourages responsible behavior, both by patients uh, and clinicians by saying, look, this is the odds per embryo. And if you wanna know what the quality of a program is, or more important, we're doing scientific studies, comparing two culture systems, comparing two medias, incubating systems, whatever, this is the way uh, to uh, control for the fact uh, that uh, multiple embryo transfer really seriously confounds uh, the data. The third very uh, simple endpoint is the availability of supernumerary embryos. Embryos that are deemed of high enough quality to be um, frozen for preserved for future use, if not for transfer in the first cycle. And so obviously if you had a, a, 
program uh, A that has a, a 30-year-old or a 35-year-old with 12 eggs and program B with a 35-year-old 12 eggs, and one gets five usable blasts on average and one gets one usable blast on average, they're not the same. And the clinical opportunity to that patient is not the same. And so uh, while no one's guaranteeing that what is, in fact, the, the mean or the median, depending on the distribution here, um, is going to occur for every patient, it does give them an overall uh, sense of the efficiency uh, and the ultimate ability uh, to, to, to grade um, their opportunity to not only conceive in that cycle, but potentially build families in future cycles. People come to us all the time when they're 38 or 40 or 42 and want three kids, and they want to know how many embryos to put away and how many cycles it's going to take to, to, to gather uh, on those embryos on average. What's average, what's kind of a 95% confidence interval. So you can have all those data, but the key is just parameter three. How many supernumerary embryos do you get per cycle? Uh, so that's all very simple. I will close quickly uh, and try to stay within my time um, by saying that in today's world, it's also important that we be responsible uh, in how we get pregnancies. Uh, if you put two back and get a singleton, your risk for low birth weight and very low birth weight is different than if you put one back and get a singleton. Um, and uh, it's just, just as if you reduce a pregnancy much later, the difference is actually quite substantial. So uh, the point is that um, sometimes we do things, sometimes we transfer embryos into endometria that are uh, thin or suboptimal. Uh, and those patients are at higher risk for low birth weight and very low birth weight. Uh, and so there, there are people on this very panel who spent a lot of time addressing that question. I guess we'll hear about that in a minute. Um, but I think it's extremely important that we talk about the prevalence of the risk for low birth weight or very low birth weight to make sure that the comprehensive nature of what we do, do you get a transfer? Do you get to delivery? Do you have extra embryos for the future? Uh, and now are those embryos uh, in the appropriate categories for low birth weight and very low birth weight? to really assure that they have the optimal chance of being a healthy child with minimal impairments. And so uh, in conclusion, I, I think these are, are things that, that merit consideration is an approach to simple reporting, not a, not a SART report that can go on for 20 or 30 or 40 or more pages uh, in some groups. It's simple, uh, it's effective, it's, it's, it's uh, completely reproducible amongst different centers, uh, and I think gives patients what they need to know and scientific investigators what they need to know when evaluating an ART. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Scott. Uh, I, I will see if uh, Juan wants to comment at, at all. And, and if not, I will probably ask you another question about, about a, an, a related issue of, of, of the uh, non-selection usage of testing. Juan, did you want to comment at all? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, thank you, Dr. Sally. Um, well, first of all, I think this, this paper is a, a very clear explanation for us as clinicians um, instead of uh, for scientists or lab technicians because we, we tend to have difficulties trying to understand uh, some of these parameters. And I think it's a very good point of view to look at from the patient side and not from the doctor side. But my question would be why we have been for so long uh, happy with looking at pregnancy rates. We, that, that's the main parameter that we've been looking at for the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And we have understood that this is not enough. We, we, we have to go further and, and, and look at uh, different parameters of, of quality of a, a program. So wh why do you think we have been happy just looking at the pregnancy rates? 
Well, I think some of that uh, is regulatory. Uh, we were the widen bill in mm -hmm. the United States mandates that we report delivery rates per transfer or per cycle start. Um, and so it, it doesn't give us uh, by itself the wiggle room to uh, do what might be clinically most evident or interpretable by patients. But I also think that, uh, and here the Europeans, of course, have led the Americans for two decades or, or more, uh, is that we have been less concerned about twins. There's been a great emphasis on eliminating triplets, but I think some of the risks of twins may have been underestimated and underemphasized in our clinical decision-making and clinical practice patterns. And so when pregnancy rates were lower, uh, everyone, almost everyone was doing uh, multiple embryo transfer. Uh, the Cochrane Review, six randomized trials done in Europe showed that two is better than one, unequivocally. I, by the way, that was a mathematical certainty. I don't know that they needed to do a whole meta-analysis, but uh, in the end, I think that as implantation rates have gotten higher, as technology has improved, labs have gotten better, clinicians have gotten better, transfers, everything's gotten better. Uh, now we can really do effective single embryo transfer uh, and the, the risk for twins uh, are just so high. Uh, Eric Foreman's study now done eight years ago, a long time ago, showed that when you put two back um, unscreened that the ongoing twin risk was 48%. Uh, I mean, that wasn't true in, in 1987 when I began my fellowship, uh, it, was, it was 2%. So I, I think it's just a changing times. I think I may uh, jump in here and, and uh, agree with both Dr. Garcia Velasco as well as Dr. Scott. Um, I think one of the overarching themes, of course, and a universal goal in medicine is to do no harm. Um, and certainly, as Dr. Scott says, as we have emerging and improving technology in which sustained implantation uh, has continued over the last several decades to progress and improve, we can't take twins lightly in comparison to singleton births. Um, not only is the rate of prematurity um, much higher, but the rates of very low birth weight and low birth weight um, in twins considerably higher um, compared to singleton deliveries. And so, you know, that certainly is one way um, in which we can do potential harm to um, patients as well as their offspring. Um, but another one of the points that I think was discussed um, in the article, as Dr. Um, Garcia Velasco mentioned, is, you know, I think a big um, controversial point is sometimes is PGTA itself um, doing harm. And I think the, the need to validate and um, focus on single embryo transfers um, is very important. The technology that integrates all of the competence of the embryology lab, as well as the assay itself. All of these things are critical in allowing us as clinicians to feel empowered to do a single embryo transfer that will allow the best outcome for our patients. And if I could just follow up on that, Julia, one of the interesting things about the way we tried to work these metrics um, is that um, if you're doing PGTA and, and you know, you're, you're having tons of patients not get to transfer, it's reflected in that. It, it, it's inclusive of that. So everyone owns their own behavior. Everyone owns their own practice pattern and patients are informed comprehensively about what they can expect for, for outcomes. Oh, thank you all. Uh, just as a question from, from the audience, can the clinicians here, I think Dr. Scott and Juan Garcia Velasco, comment on how their single embryo transfer strategies evolved in the past decade? 
I'll go first. Juan, um, jump in any time, though. Uh, so, you know, a decade ago, um, we were, uh, our number, uh, most common transfer was a two-embryo transfer. We averaged just under two embryos uh, transferred. We did relatively few three-embryo transfers by, by two years ago. But uh, the substantial majority were two embryo transfers. And as, uh, as outcomes improved, as PGT really became refined, uh, and it has, uh, you know, it's had a, a, an evolution like almost all technologies, and it's better now than it was uh, 20 or 25 years ago. Um, and the impact is, is more reliable and, and more favorable. Uh, what we saw is that our multiple rates were insane. Uh, and I'm, I'm not picking on anyone else other than my own program and my own practice. The, the twin risks were just crazy. And so we started doing more and more single embryo transfers. And as patients, uh, as we had data, and as we compelled our staff, compelling the nurses and the rest of the staff, very important, realized that we could get outcomes in the 60s uh, for people under the age of, uh, under the age of 42, 42 and under, uh, maybe about 60 for the 42 year olds and closer to 70 for the, for the 35 and under crowd. Um, they, they were very comfortable in telling patients don't put too bad. The twin risk is 50% or more. And uh, you're you know, six times the risk of cerebral palsy and twice the risk of neonatal death and substantial higher risk for divorce in the couple. And you start rattling these things off because it's not just medical risks. Um, and uh, patients became comfortable. And in the last uh, year or so now, uh, we do 100% single embryo transfer. What? I, I fully agree with you, Dr. Scott. And, and I, I think uh, for those of us who have been in, in IVF for quite a few years now, we, we have seen how we have reduced gradually the number of embryos to be transferred and have increased the outcome. And at least for us in Europe, we, we, have, uh, we have benefited from two issues. First of all was uh, participating in randomized control trials that per protocol, you had to transfer one embryo at a time. And secondly was PTA. And, and I think the, the first uh, group of people to convince was uh, the clinicians. Clinicians were hard to move from two to one embryos to transfer because they have this feeling that it, it could be better because when we have the patient pregnant, then we send them to the obstetrician, we don't follow the pregnancies, uh, but then we realized that the outcome was not as good as we expected. And, and then the next uh, was to convince the couples uh, to, to be sure and convince and, and, and trust that one embryo at a time would be the best thing to do. So you can have as many kids as you want, but one at a time would be the best idea. So it has been a transition, but for the last few years, I think that the most convincing tool has been PGTA and looking at the outcome, not at pregnancy rates, as you mentioned before, but at the live birth rate. Wonderful. Uh, I just also want to add something that, you know, I, we will come to that maybe later on with, with the third trial. But as you know, at least the NIH-funded studies in the United States, uh, because they cannot really work on embryo biology itself, human embryo biology, have generally focused on the potential adverse effects of IVF. And, and there are a number of uh, really large studies that are funded by the NIH studying how IVF might hurt people, but many of those adverse outcomes are related to multiple embryo pregnant uh, transfers, et cetera, which are less relevant today. So it's kind of that, that science is coming behind uh, what is really actually happening day to day um, in IVF practice. Um, yeah. If I can add just one other comment, Emery, and uh, kind of today's world of looking back, I don't think we need to indict people who are doing two embryo transfers or three embryo transfers. You go to the 1980s, four embryo transfers. Because at the time, implantation rates were so low 
that was essential to get our patients any realistic chance of having a baby. Uh, and I think we should really think of this as more of a, a victory lap, a celebration that uh, the aggregate, uh, knowing when to freeze embryos and uh, Ernesto Bosch's work on progesterone, so many other things uh, have shown us a pathway now that really empowers effective single embryo transfer. And that, that's, just a, that's just exciting. If I may, I, there is there is a comment that I would like to read from from the audience. It's it's, it's slightly longer, but it's it's relevant because it 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 relates to our daily struggle with the patient. So uh, the participant says the patient would like to deliver a healthy baby regardless of normal or low birth weight. SCT does not satisfy all patient groups, especially those with miscarriage history. Can you convince the patient to go for SET and give them insurance for effective pregnancy and healthy delivery? I'm happy to tackle that, although Dr. Kim can also jump in, who's got some expertise in this area. So no one, no one said PGTA diagnoses every single problem that might go on with a pregnancy or a child. And for anyone to presuppose that any diagnostic test in a, in a fetus or an embryo or a whole person a lot of walking the streets, it's some diagnostic will tell you comprehensively about all of their aspects of their health for their life is unrealistic. Um, and and I, well, I, had, I would love to have that test. Oh my goodness, wouldn't we all? Uh, I, th I think it's impractical. For people with recurrent loss, uh, Dr. Kim has recently done a large study uh, and shown that you can reduce uh, the miscarriage risk by about 75%. And so does it get rid of all of them? No, because not all of them are related to aneuploidy, but many are. And so uh, it empowers, again, very effective single embryo transfer, gets rid of the substantial majority of the losses uh, and helps these patients, uh, help these patients uh, build families uh, more effectively. So uh, no, it's not a panacea. No, nothing does everything, but yes, it helps these patients, including the recurrent loss patients. Just to piggyback on what Dr. Scott said, not only does it improve their um, their prior performance of decreasing miscarriage or loss, it actually improves it to a point where we found that um, it equates with other infertile control patients without a, a, that similar history. So not only is it a slight mitigation in their risk factor, it's, it's actually it, it brings them essentially back to baseline. So I think that's that's really important to counsel these patients on as well. Thank you. I, I, if I may make a comment, there's also um, insurance company aspect of it, although I know Dr. Scott doesn't like necessarily to talk about it, money when he's talking about science and everything. But uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, not only we want our patients to do well and their babies to do well and be healthy, I think insurance companies prefer that the patients do well and they don't get become sicker and they don't deliver sick babies. And I think uh, it is likely to go in that direction that insurance companies recognizing that certain uh, attitudes toward treatment are healthier than others for, for outcomes. And I think uh, they're likely to reinforce them in the future. So anyway, that's just a prediction. We'll see if maybe I'm wrong. I remember Shelby Neal, who is a fellow here, but is now uh, on the faculty at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. Um, showed that it's actually more cost-effective to do PGTA if you have two or more embryos. The total cost to get to a live birth are, are cheaper, and that was when PGTA on average cost about twice as much as it does today. It's probably cost-effective today even with one embryo. So I, um, people should remember this is a cost-effective therapy. Yeah. No, I was mentioning what I was uh, referring to is the cost of having twins or triplets who stay uh, spend a long time in 
and neonatal intensive care unit and other complications associated with multiple pregnancy uh, that I think um, insurance companies are very well aware of. Okay, I think uh, we don't have any additional questions. So uh, Andres, do you want to move to the next? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, that was great. Um, our next paper, our next uh, paper, sorry, will also be presented by Dr. Scott. Um, the title is a bit of a mouthful, so bear with me. Uh, it's titled "A Multicenter Perspective: Blinded Non-Selection Study Evaluating the Predictive Value of an Aneuploid Diagnosis Using a Targeted Next-Generation Sequencing-Based Preimplantation Genetic Testing for Aneuploidy Assay and Impact of Biopsy." It has been accepted for publication in Fertility and Sterility. It's currently available online as well. Um, Dr. Scott. First, I want to point out that the title went back and forth with the reviewers four times, making us add things to it. I promise <laughs> we didn't start out with a title that's as long as the paper. I promise. <laughs> Fair enough. So, um, I, but I apologize for that because we should have been more compelling with the reviewers, but we weren't. Um, so I think I, I will work to be brief here. I think this is a, a I think it's one of the most important studies our group has ever done. So we, we're pretty excited about it. Um, I think you have to back up and say, what is the goal of PGTA? And the goal is to eliminate embryos that cannot make babies. I want to point this out. The goal is not to get the, 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 um, the genotype of the embryo. The goal is not to characterize biology, although you get those things and they can be important. I'm not saying they're never important. Please don't, don't mistake that. And for PGTM and, and others, it can be extremely important. But really, why do patients come here and do aneuploidy screen? Because they want to take out the ones that cannot make a healthy baby and just then select from the ones that can make a healthy baby. And so when you look at validation, it's important to keep the, that goal in mind. Uh, there's been a lot written, and I'm not going to go through it all, about analytical validation. And so if you have three cells or five cells or 10 cells, and they have this particular genetic complement that we can assign a karyotype correctly, um, that's great and essential, and, and that literature, of course, is so important, but it's not enough. Because errors can also occur, uh, not just due to analytics being wrong, errors can occur because the, it was a mosaic embryo and the biology was wrong. And while I believe it's quite rare, there's still some potential for self-correction. And so if you really want to demonstrate safety and efficacy, which both the, the um, FDA and, and, and the European agencies have said is a standard for diagnostics, right, safety and efficacy, then you've got to prove that if you're taking an embryo out of the pool, that it would not be capable of making a healthy baby. That cannot be measured in an analytical laboratory. And that cannot be measured by comparing two assays to each other. It can only be measured by putting an embryo, by biopsying an embryo, uh, at least in the day, today's world, uh, and then putting it back, seeing whether it made a baby or made a miscarriage or whatever happens to that embryo, uh, and, then, and then analyzing the result, and then uh, analyzing the sample and say, hey, we said this embryo was aneuploid. Did it, did it implant and make a healthy baby? Because that means we would have thrown it out incorrectly. And that speaks enormously to safety and efficacy. Uh, as scientists, we love randomized controlled trials, right? We just, we just live for them. Um, but you can't, a randomized controlled trial, because it only transfers normals, provides no data about the risk of transferring, or excuse me, of discarding a reproductively competent embryo. So it must be measured directly. And that can only be done uh, through a non-selection study. And so uh, I, I want to 
That's the most important part of what I'll say. I'll run through the numbers for you real quick now, and I think they're very interesting. Uh, and part of that risk, of course, is the risk of biopsy, but I'll come to that at the very end. Uh, the paper has the kind of the, the standard um, style uh, flow diagram that goes through where they came from. Uh, very briefly, uh, patients actually came from two studies. Uh, Marie Werner did a randomized trial, but every time we tried to consent someone, they wanted just to do PGT. So we, we didn't recruit as many patients as we would have liked for that study. Uh, but there was one arm that was the blinded arm, the non-selection arm. So even though we abandoned that study uh, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, we took those patients and then we did a complete just non-selection study. Patients got free cycles, which helped us with recruitment. Uh, and we were able to come up with this group of 402 patients um, because 14 had withdrawn uh, of the original 443 and 27 uh, went through their culture and had nothing to transfer, about 6%, which is about normal in our laboratory. Um, and and not, a, not a high number, but a real number. Um, of those 402 patients, we had 484 transfers because they let everyone have up to two. And we treated that as a panel variable and you can control for that so it doesn't confound the statistics. But this is really an observational paper anyway, right? We're not comparing groups, but you can, you can create confidence intervals around them. Uh, we did some comparisons uh, as you'll see in the, um, in the impactor biopsy part. So what do we find? There were 312 of the embryos completely blinded at the time of transfer, whose analytical result was eventually euploid. And of those 312, 202 delivered, 65%. It's just what we expect. It's kind of a typical for cross-sectional all ages uh, PGT result. Uh, and so we were, we were not surprised by that, but it can, kind of confirms this is a routine clinical setting. There were 102 embryos, 102, that's enormous, uh, embryos that were labeled as annual, had a whole chromosomal aneuploidy. And of those, zero delivered, 102 uh, transfers, uh, and we'll go through the losses uh, for them in just a moment, but no deliveries. And that wasn't due to us terminating. That was, that was nature. And so the predictive value of an adenoploid result was 100%. So all this concern that 30% of uh, competent embryos are being thrown out and uh, you know, high, high quality science done with soccer balls, uh, probably are not going to be valid in this setting. Um, and this is a direct measurement. And the only way to refute it is to bring other direct measurements, which we would all certainly welcome. Uh, obviously, it's different for every assay, and this only deals with the data from this analytical platform. Uh, but the reality is an aneuploid result predicts incompetent embryos. There were no live births. Three and a half percent of the embryos that were transferred, um, uh, oh, 16 were mosaic. Interesting, 69% of those delivered, 68.8%. And so uh, we have become increasingly convinced, as of others, that mosaics are really safe to transfer, and we transfer them with impunity in our program. Uh, even though that's a small end, we have much larger ends from other things, um, and that'll be a topic of a future paper. Uh, but across the board, we're not too worried about that. 8% 8, 8 or a little under 9% were segmentals, uh, 39 transfers, and uh, only 31% of those delivered. Clearly segmentals bring a biologic burden. Many of these are mosaic. It may depend on how much of the embryo is abnormal or where it's abnormal, we don't know. Uh, but certainly uh, segmentals can be transferred. We had no ongoing abnormal gestations in the group, but the overall success rates uh, are lower. And so uh, when you put all that together, uh, what it really tells you is that if you have whole chromosomal aneuploidy and your assay works and, and you have these types of data, you can be very confident in telling a patient to discard that embryo 
because it's not going to lead the live birth to the healthy infant. A direct measurement in a clinical setting, no substitute for it. I also want to point out just an interesting uh, side question that came out of this, which is of the 102 aneuploids, how many implanted? How many had positive pregnancy tests? I had been told my whole career and told my fellows and told countless patients, well, you know, we're not doing PGTA if they're not, but the aneuploids just don't implant. Monosomies virtually never and blah, blah, blah. Guess what? 40.4% of aneuploid embryos implanted and 24% had clinical pregnancies. They had a gestational sac and a yolk sac at least. They didn't always get to heartbeat. And so that's, a, that's an additional burden of time and expense and emotion for the patient who becomes pregnant and has a loss. And it's not, you know, one or 2%. 40% of our patients uh, had some implantation uh, be evident. I'll close in the last moments here um, by just addressing the question of, is biopsy safe? Um, and so one of the interesting things about doing a non-selection study is if you take the whole population, no analytical result at all, it's exactly the same population as uh, people not doing PGTA. It differs only by the fact that those embryos were biopsied, right? So if you take the whole population, everyone lumped together, it's just like matched controls where everyone's lumped together because there's no PGTA being done functionally in either group. And what we found is that uh, the sustained implantation rate in the study group was 47.9%, uh, and in the match controls was 45.8. Those are equivalent, um, which, is, which means, by the way, that the biopsy did not harm the embryos. So again, there's been just a great deal of uh, accusation even. Uh, it's almost histrionic uh, from a very limited number of people, not, not most, uh, about this great adverse impact to biopsy. And I have to tell you, this is a multi-center study. We saw no evidence of it. And so uh, I think that uh, at this time, uh, could you say that it couldn't be done wrong, that it couldn't be harmful somewhere? Anything we do can be done wrong. You can do a transfer wrong. There's, there's so many things. So uh, I wouldn't say that, but, it, but in the hands of competent embryologists, and I firmly believe that the vast majority of embryologists are quite competent, um, so this is not a rare event, uh, that trophectin biopsy can be done very safely and without any diminution in the probability of that embryo leading to a healthy delivery. So I'll, I'll stop right there with that. Uh, Non-selection studies are essential. Uh, aneuploid embryos don't make babies. We're not throwing out anything that's competent and uh, biopsy is safe. Thank you, Dr. Scott. Um, Dr. Wells, Dr. Garcia Velasco, the floor is yours for discussion. As before, obviously feel free to comment on each other. Well, thing, thank you. Um, well, you know, I've been aware that this study was going on for some time, and it's been one of the ones that I've been most eagerly awaiting the data from. And I think it's not an exaggeration to say that this is a landmark study in our field. What I, one, I mean, There's many things I like about it. Um, maybe the title isn't one of them, but what, the, what I do like about the title is that it really tells you straight away, you don't even have to read the abstract, why this is a good trial, it's multi-center, it's prospective, it's blinded, it's a non-selection study, which as Dr. Scott mentioned, it's the only kind of study that actually has the design that can tell you about the impact of the transfer of an aneuploid embryo, what happens to that a randomized controlled trial, which of course we all uphold as being a sort of guiding light for any kind of medical intervention, just cannot give you that information. So you, I you know, we can't stress that enough, really. Um, the the whole strategy behind it, I, I just really like, and I think it's 
uh, another thing I really like about it is it, it faces head on some of the ongoing controversies that have surrounded PGTA, uh, like this question about, are we discarding um, any viable embryos by doing PGTA and is biopsy detrimental? You know, it doesn't shy away from those and it gives us the first really, I think, hard data that we can look at in a critical way and see what the true answer is. I think based on the results that it shows, there's little question really that PGTA, or at least this particular PGTA platform, is the most powerful embryo selection tool that we have at our disposal at the moment. You know, I mean, if you compare it to anything else, morphology and morphology, let's not forget if we're talking about the risk of discarding viable embryos, we discard viable embryos every day because their morphological criteria, criteria for freezing, you know, they don't have the morphology necessary to be frozen. And yet we know some of those embryos are viable. So probably far more wasted that way. Uh, and certainly if they're not helping, it doesn't help to pick out the most viable ones in quite as dramatic way as, as this. So while you can never say that a methodology like this is perfect, and we have certainly seen a radical in evolution of PGTA methods over time, I think this is the most powerful methodology we have for embryo selection right now. And of course, that means that if we want to do things like single embryo transfer, uh, this is going to be an exceptionally useful tool for realizing that without having any kind of negative impact uh, on the overall pregnancy rate. Not to forget, of course, as well, that you know, the, the IVF patients have to undergo this emotional roller coaster of the treatment. And really, they want to get off that roller coaster as possible, ideally, while avoiding as many loops that it might throw at you as possible. And so the sort of additional benefits of fewer transfers, faster time to pregnancy, and you know, although this study may not have been powered to show it statistically, certainly a, a strong indication of reduced uh, miscarriage rates and likely fewer aneuploid pregnancies. You know, it's it's all um, it all feels very positive uh, to me. Um, so you know, I think the the key take home messages for, that I've taken from from this study is that real reassurance about not wasting viable embryos. Uh, but also the importance of validation. You know, I think quite often PGTA in the past has been rightly criticized for having great aspirations and a failure to deliver. And a lot of that has been because, you know, scientists meaning very well have just not applied the technology um, after sufficiently rigorous validation. So we have to say that although this PGTA strategy um, seems to be delivering um, from, from everything that this study shows. This is just one PGTA platform. And we have to be careful about extrapolating this to all the PGT methodologies that are out there because they differ significantly. Um, if you actually read through the methodology that's been used in this case, this is a complex PGTA method that has both quantitative and qualitative measures that are sort of fused together to give a very robust uh, result. And that's kind of unusual in uh, PGTA methodologies. And I think it's one of the secrets of the success of this particular uh, method. Um, I think 
some of that success has come through uh, the fact that it doesn't seem to be overcalling aneuploid is. And also the key thing, of course, is this question about mosaics. Uh, first of all, you mustn't be overcalling them, but also you must be considering them for transfer. Uh, and that was probably one of the, the principal failings of uh, the STAR study, which was published uh, last year. Um, so uh, I think, yeah, I, I won't take up any more time, but I, you know, I congratulate the authors of that study. I think it's a, a very important study. My comments uh, go in the same direction as, as, as Dagan, as Dr. Wells, uh, because basically this, this paper uh, answers two of the main questions that we all get as clinicians and, and we get from patients on a daily basis. First of all is how many of the discarded embryos <clears throat> are okay. Maybe we're throwing away embryos that are fine. And this study shows that this is not true. No, none of the discarded embryos are going to make a baby. And the second question that patients ask, as we as clinicians ask ourselves, is does this have any impact on the embryo? Uh, does this damage my embryos? And, and it seems extremely clear from this study that, that no, it does not damage. So if you put these two answers together, along with the design that this is, uh, I have to say, a very brave design that you transfer embryos that could be aneuploid. And, and who does this? Uh, I mean, this is an extremely unusual design. <clears throat> and you see that the aneuploid embryos do not make a baby, I think um, this will be one of the most quoted papers in the next few years because I, I think it, it is extremely useful paper for clinicians and also for, for uh, patients. But my question would be, if, if I may, um, how does this apply to others? I mean, I, you all know uh, the, uh, one of these famous publications not long ago from another group showing that the euclid rate varies tremendously from lab to lab. And, and, and this may be related to the stimulation protocol or to the medication or to the uh, embryologist or who is doing the biopsy or which lab is doing the biopsy. How does this uh, results apply to other labs? Well, I will um, weigh in, but, but Dr. Wells uh, has greater, certainly far greater uh, technical expertise than I do. I don't believe you can, I think it shows what's possible, but I believe each assay should be validated on its own merits. I think each assay needs to have this type of study done to demonstrate safety and efficacy. Uh, when you bring uh, different medications to, 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 the, to the clinic, uh, both in Europe and the US, uh, you have to do, you know, just because one uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory work doesn't mean all the others don't have to do their trials and show that they're both safe and effective. And so I think that, uh, uh, as, as Dr. Wells mentioned, there, there's very significant differences in this analytical platform. Uh, and, and I will just look back at some of the ones our own group is used. So I'm only criticizing our own group. Um, we did qPCR and the predictive value of normal was very high. But uh, in time, we were able to learn and what drove us uh, to develop this assay was that we were overcalling some abnormals, um, not 30% or, or something like that, but high, much higher than, than we had realized. Uh, and even SIPARES, which we'd used before, that, that had a four or 5% error rate. And so uh, I think we have data internally, uh, again, just criticizing our own group, that the different platforms have gotten progressively better. Um, but uh, this, is a, this is a very different place uh, because of the comprehensive nature uh, of NextGen and the, and the different approach to analytics. Um, and I think each platform needs to do these studies. Uh, if they don't do these studies, I don't believe you can say that they've demonstrated safety and efficacy. Uh, I really don't, but that's just an opinion. 
Egan, do you want to also comment? Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything that's been said, really. It's, um, yeah, I think prior to embarking on something like a randomized controlled trial, uh, what I've taken from this paper is just how important it is to do these sorts of validation studies first. And, you know, I, I hold my hands up. I've not always done that myself in the past, but it's, you know, that's the great thing about papers like this is that it makes you look at your own work in the past and actually think, actually, you know what, I could have maybe done that somewhat better. So, um, you know, I think it, there's, there's some very useful messages for all of us in this. Can I ask one more question uh, to both of you? Uh, after looking at the results of this study, which is extremely reassuring, does it make any sense to, to, to think about getting a biopsy of the initial mass rather than just keep biopsying the trophectoderm? Or, or maybe uh, we should think about this in the future? Oh, <laughs> that's an interesting one. I think, uh, you know, I mean, people have talked about the, the possibility of inner cell mass biopsy, and even one or two people have done it, at least in a research context. Um, but um, I think you'd have to be a pretty brave person to embark on that in any major way clinically. But I think, you know, the results from this study suggest that it's probably not necessary. I mean, the actual predictive value from the trophectoderm biopsy is so good. I mean, how could it be much better from biopsying the inner cell mass? Uh, you know, maybe you could argue that, that you'll get clarity on the mosaics, but it seems from this data, and again, of course, the study wasn't powered to look at it, so we, there's still a bit of a question mark, but it looks like from this data that probably the mosaics aren't anything to worry about anyway. And so, uh, you know, given all of that, if you treated the mosaics just like the euploids within this study, then probably there wouldn't be much argument for biopsy of the, the inner cell mass. Um, Richard, what would you say about that? Well, from a developmental perspective uh, from the embryo, uh, the inner cell mass is already uh, differentiating relatively early in this process. And one of the, you would have to do it before that to, to really think about being safe. And one of the problems we have is that some embryos are really expanded. I mean, they're, they're, they're Gardner fives and sixes on day five and others don't get there to day seven. So we don't even have a good way of saying at what developmental state that inner cell mass is when we make the decision. So uh, I still think 65% uh, implantation rates in the euploids uh, gives us room for improvement, uh, better selection and maybe uh, doing a better job in our culture systems to potentially drive those, those outcomes upward. Um, but at this point, I, I don't see an experimental design. You really have to do a lot of work in primates uh, to show safety before you could really think about doing it in people. Uh, it would be a complex road. Thank you, Dr. Scott and Megan um, Miles. I, I have a few questions here that I'll try to go through uh, as long as we have time. Uh, one quick question is, was there a difference in live birth rate between high mosaics or low mosaics, or did you differentiate high and low mosaics in your study? So uh, anything above 80% uh, and higher was called abnormal. And then beyond that, it didn't make any difference. Okay. Another question is, could you please address the potential ethical concerns of comping cycles to induce patients to participate in the study, particularly when the evidence for better cycle outcomes with PGTA is so high? Well, I, um, it's always a question uh, almost all patients who participate in studies, including all the oncology studies, they're frequently getting free medications, free screening, 
free uh, follow-up studies and, and free access to, uh, to things that they might not otherwise get and may or may not be covered by their insurance. Uh, I mean, this is always a chronic, a, a chronic problem. Uh, so yes, I think you, it would be fair to say that when you're providing free care to patients, that's some level of inducement. And also I would say, yes, it's the standard of care in virtually every uh, field of medicine. Um, and what we do do though is we, we monitor for safety very, very carefully. The outcomes are varied. Uh, we, we detect that uh, and we stop the study. And in this particular study, uh, we, we, because of the, uh, the Nate, we had, we had a prior randomized trial, a parent analysis showing safety of biopsy. We really felt the worst they could do is get exactly what they would do if they cycled without PGT. So we were not terribly worried about harming the patient. The worst we could do is what they were going to do anyway. And, uh, and so in that sense, we feel like we help some people gain access to care. We answered an important scientific question, and we don't believe the risk for harm was uh, uh, measurable. Thank you, Dr. Scott. I have uh, one more question that I want to share. It's a little long. For the pregnancies after the transfer of embryos with segmental aneuploidy, was there any pre- or postnatal testing performed to confirm normal ploidy status? Um, all patients were uh, advised to consider antenatal testing, uh, and some did, but some didn't um, across that board. All the uh, kids were tested, uh, but just with buckle swabs. We didn't go through multiple uh, tissues, so uh, that doesn't provide a comprehensive answer. But the buckle swabs we did on all the newborns uh, were completely normal. We had no evidence uh, in those. And so I understand that's a limited, a limited glance, but you can't do a lot of very invasive things to young babies uh, that's otherwise healthy and, and doing well. The parents are aware uh, that the embryo had some segmental abnormalities uh, and that the phenotypes are, are, are normal thus far. I think that in a few years, we'll go back and revisit and see whether or not uh, there's any evidence of developmental issues amongst our segmentals, not just from this study, but from, from our population as a whole. Uh, but so far, it all looks good. I have one other comment that I want to share with you. I think it's it's a, it's an important comment, that although it doesn't directly relate to the study. It's it's important to address it. The, the uh, participant states that uh, there are studies where incompetent embryos with one form of aneuploid or another, and high-level mosaics earmarked for discarding, have been shown. Um, to self-correct, oh, that's, 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 a, that's a statement by the participant, on chorionic with a sampling analysis after transfer, and a good proportion of these result in healthy live birth. So there's one assumption in this statement, and but I think it's important to, you know, to hear what you would say, because I am assuming there are other people who think uh, the same way. It's a very important question, um, and I'm happy for everyone to weigh in. I think it just shows the difference between the analytical platforms. I think what it shows is whatever tests they were using at that time does not have a great predictive value amongst their abnormal results. That's a big red flag and says proceed with caution. I think they should go back to that laboratory and say, where's your non-selection study? Uh, and they should expect one. They should expect those data to become available. Uh, I certainly this, and I can only point to my own clinic, QPCR and SNP arrays, they were not, they were far from perfect. And I don't believe this assay will be perfect. Sooner or later, there'll be a failure but I think it's an exceedingly, exceedingly low rate. Whereas before it was kind of mid single digits. And, and so um, I, think, I think what they have demonstrated is that assay has problems. 
Um, and I think there's an opportunity to, to do better. It does not mean the PGTA um, can't be very valuable to patients and is not a big part of our future. Dr. Wells, do you want to comment? Or? Um, I've not got too much more to, uh, to add to that, really. Um, yeah, I think that the likelihood is that when you see something like that, it's more to do with the inaccuracies of the assay than a true uh, biological phenomenon. You know, uh, I don't really like the, the term self-correction anyway, because it's, it seems to imply an almost sort of conscious or a mechanistic drive to correct. Whereas I think the reality is that when you do see an apparent correction, uh, it, with very rare exceptions, this was actually a mosaic embryo where the normal cells just have a preferential growth advantage uh, or Perhaps the aneuploid ones are more likely to undergo apoptosis at later stages, as has been shown in the mouse, for example. Um, but yeah, I think it, the actual conversion of a meiotic trisomy or monosomy into a normal embryo, we know it can happen because we rarely, very rarely see uniparental diasomies, but it's an extremely uncommon event and, and not very relevant in terms of what we see in the clinic. Perfect. Thank you, thank you. Uh, and as before we move to the next one, I also want to comment. Uh, I think uh, PGTA is a is is a kind of contentious subject, and we have some of the leaders in the field in this in this meeting. But for the audience and for everyone else, I would urge them to um, rather than getting just listening to people just comment other you know, on other people's papers, you should just ask the question and see what is the best. A mechanism to answer the question. Here we 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 review this paper where the where the non-selection is the best method to answer the question in hand. That's our statement or the or the speaker's statement. And then if self-correction is is a concern, there could be um, mechanistic designs that can answer. Then then people should come up with that, and maybe it can be tested. Uh, and it has been done in certain mouse models, but that can be discussed. Uh, so either way, it's very, very important for us to just stick to the data and study design rather than, you know, getting lost in personal opinions about unproven uh, things that may or may not be happening. Anyway, Andres, do you want to move to the next one? Absolutely. Thank you. The last paper for the night is going to be presented by Dr. Shabazi. The paper is titled Developmental Potential of Aneuploid Human Embryos Cultured Beyond Implantation. It's been accepted for publication in Nature Communications and it's currently available online as well. Um, Dr. Shabazi, whenever you're ready. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really glad to present today our latest study on the development of aneuploid human embryos beyond implantation. And before I start, I would like to say that this was a fantastic collaboration between Evie Arame and the laboratory of Magdalena Zernika Getz in the University of Cambridge. So basically, as you all know, Aneuploid is one of the major limitations of human reproduction. Approximately 50% of in vitro fertilized human embryos are aneuploid. And we also know that in cases of miscarriage, uh, we can find approximately 50% of uh, cases affected by aneuploid. So really this is a big limitation for human reproduction. However, it's quite unbelievable that we don't really know what are the consequences of a specific aneuploid is for development. And this is because in many cases, aneuploid embryos fail during the very early stages after implantation. And this 
a specific window of development has been called the black box of development. We transfer embryos, then we don't really know what is happening. We just know that the pregnancy doesn't progress. So this was the specific question that we wanted to address. We wanted to know what happens uh, to these aneuploid embryos when they develop beyond the blastocyst stage. And to answer this question, actually, we started looking at the pre-implantation window. So we looked at uh, embryos that had a single chromosome aneuploidy and all possible single chromosome aneuploidies and analyzed their development up to blastocyst stage. And what we learned from these studies in just a sentence was that basically all single chromosome aneuploidies have the potential to develop to the blastocyst stage, but they do so at a lower rate and with different morphological abnormalities. So knowing this, we thought, okay, now let's move to the next step in development, the post early post-implantation window. And we were in a perfect position to address this question because in 2016, we developed a method that allows human embryos to develop in vitro in the laboratory beyond the blastocyst stage through those early post-implantation stages. And this happens in the absence of any maternal tissues. So we, we have seen that the human embryos have these self-organizing capabilities that allow them to continue developing without the need to implant in, develop, in, the, without the, need to implant in the maternal uterus. And I'm happy to talk more about this system uh, during the questions. So using the system, we have now a fantastic opportunity to take aneuploid embryos and culture them beyond the blastocyst stage. And for this first study, we focus on the day nine of development. So um, first we had to select the specific aneuploidies. Uh, we couldn't just look at all of them. And we decided to go for those that were very common. Uh, they were present in high frequency in blastocysts. And we also wanted to look at aneuploidies that were representative of different pregnancy outcomes. So we focused on trisomy 21, uh, which would be, of course, viable. Trisomy 15, which normally leads to uh, first trimester miscarriage, and the um, embryos show different kinds of abnormalities. Trisomy 16, which also leads to first trimester miscarriage, but the, the phenotype is more severe. In most cases, um, you would find an empty sac. And then monosomy 21, which uh, is... A, very detrimental for development. It would lead to very early pregnancy loss. In most of the cases, these embryos wouldn't, wouldn't even be found. So then we took these embryos, we cultured them up to day nine, and using uh, immunofluorescent techniques, we analyzed them, and we looked at the morphology and the different cell types that were present. And one of the uh, things that uh, was very quickly apparent was the fact that monosomy 21 embryos were arresting very early in development. So approximately 50% of them were already arrested by day nine. And this is in agreement with clinical data showing that monosomies are very detrimental for development uh, as expected. However, there was something surprising in the data. So as I said, approximately 50% of those monosomy 21 embryos would arrest by day nine, but there was a proportion of approximately 20 to 30% of monosomy 21 embryos in which the inner cell, my, inner cell mass developed quite well, but the trophectoderm showed a hypoproliferation defect. Those cells were not proliferating as we would expect. And we thought this is quite surprising. As I said, monosomies are very detrimental. So how come inner cell mass cells are proliferating so well? And this is when we had a hypothesis that maybe these few cases of monosomy 21 embryos that were developing apparently normal were mosaics. So to test this hypothesis, what we decided to do was to take those day nine uh, monosomy 21 embryos that we had analyzed by immunofluorescent techniques, we cut them into different pieces and we resequenced those pieces using next generation sequencing. And what we observe 
in a case of a monosomy 21 embryo that arrested uh, at day nine, we could validate that actually all of those pieces were monosomy 21. However, when we look at one of those monosomy 21 embryos that developed with a well-developed uh, uh, and proliferating inner mass, what we observed was that there were both euploid cells and monosomy 21 cells. So basically that embryo was diagnosed as monosomy 21 at the blastocyst stage. We then found at day night that it was a mosaic of euploid and monosomy 21 cells. And from our study, we analyzed a total of 27 embryos and we found three non-concordant cases. And I'm happy to discuss them also uh, later during the questions. So now what about the trisomies? I've talked quite a lot about the monosomies. So as I said, we looked at trisomy 21, trisomy 15, and trisomy 16. We couldn't see any um, major abnormalities in trisomies 21 and trisomy 15. And again, this would be in agreement with uh, the clinical data. However, for trisomy 16, what we detected was that uh, a hyperproliferation defect of the trophoblast. Again, trophoblast cells were not proliferating as they were supposed to do. And the inner cell mass tissue was developing very well. So now, how could we explain this? And we really wanted to go uh, deep into this question and understand from the molecular point of view the reason for this phenotype. And here the hypothesis was different. Our hypothesis was that there was probably a gene in chromosome 16 that was expressed at higher levels in these embryos, and this was leading to the defect in the trophoblast. So we were looking at potential genes that could mediate this phenotype, and we decided to focus on a gene, it's called Icadirin, and this gene mediates cell-cell interaction. So it's kind of like a glue that puts two cells together and mediates cell-cell addition between the cells. And we actually observed that in our trisomy 16 embryos, the levels uh, of the Icadirin protein were upregulated, uh, and that would be in agreement with the presence of three chromosomes uh, 16. So now, could it be that the phenotype we are observing is due to the increased levels of Icadirin? We thought that could be the case because Icadirin has been shown to control proliferation and sulfate decisions in other systems. So to really test that functionally, we had to move to um, a stem cell-based model. So we use human trophoblast stem cells and increase artificially by genetically manipulating the cells, the levels of Icadirin. And we managed to increase the levels of Icadirin to those levels that we observe in trisomy 16 embryos. And by doing that in the cells, we were able to recapitulate that defect of the trophoblast. So cells stopped completely proliferating, they differentiated prematurely into syncytial trophoblast and extravillus trophoblast, and basically uh, we lost the stem cells. So the conclusion from these molecular studies was that uh, the uh, increased levels of Icadirin in trisomy 16 embryos lead to the defect in the trophoblast. And as a control, we did the same experiments in embryonic stem cells, and we were able to see that the upregulation of Icadirin was not causing any type of uh, uh, obvious phenotype. Uh, and this explains why in our trisomy 16 embryos, we didn't see any major alterations in the embryonic tissue, but the alterations were specific of the trophoblast compartment. But I think what our, what our study really shows is that now we can use this platform of in vitro culture to look at uh, phenotypic alterations uh, in aneuploid embryos and really to dissect the mechanisms of why aneuploid embryos fail, uh, what is the mechanism behind, and what is their phenotype, and at which specific stage they um, present abnormalities. And I think this kind of work was really 
possible because we combine the expertise of people uh, from different fields. So we had, of course, the great expertise from Dr. Selly and Dr. Scott and our expertise on stem cell biology and developmental biology. I think this was really a key for the success of the paper and for uh, being able to bridge human reproduction development and stem cell biology. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Shabazi. Um, Dr. Sally, Dr. Wells, your comments? Thank you, Marta. Uh, I mean, this, you, uh, I'm glad that you finally get to present this because this was a, a prize paper in, at ASM 2019, but you were uh, having a baby and uh, you, you didn't get to present it and you didn't get to come and get your award. And, uh, uh, and you are working with Magdalena zernska Goetz have been the key part of this study uh, uh, with AVRMA's uh, methods. Uh, it's, it's impressive to me that uh, just the first figure of this paper has data from 35,000 human embryos development in it. Now, uh, in scientific uh, circles, sometimes uh, they describe this as a descriptive work and they call it the B word. It's like a, it's almost like a killer uh, sentence. Like if you, if you described as the descriptive work, it's not a good thing, mm -hmm. but there is descriptive and there is descriptive. And this is like a descriptive work from 35,000 embryos. And I believe just the first part of it will, will be useful for many future studies in people designing what to study, how to study, where to go, etc. And then you went ahead and we characterized uh, with also Tianran Wang, who was uh, in New Jersey and Xintao and a key member of this team. And you, you were able to compare and contrast for uh, important aneuploidies that you identified and then went ahead and to, um, to look at mechanistic abnormalities in trisomy 16 embryos. Uh, I think a, a very exciting aspect of this manuscript is that it bridges many worlds. I, I mm. uh, mentioned before that it is really important to describe the question that matters and describe the method to answer the question. And certain uh, key questions in this field can only be um, really answered by building bridges. And this is important because it first bridges EVRMA, which is one of the largest private IVF groups in the world, with the University of Cambridge and your expertise. EVRMA brought to the table the capability of clinical IVF and pre-implantation genetic testing. And Magdalena Zernika Goetz's experience, where she's been doing exciting work in mouse and human uh, and developing the post-implantation embryo culture methods where you were very heavily involved. Uh, and, uh, and congratulations on you starting your own lab now. Uh, we're very proud of you. Second, it bridges actually national funding in the United Kingdom with private funding in the United States and Spain, which is very important. Uh, and the third, it brings together the researchers from different disciplines, as you said, clinical embryology, reproductive medicine, a clinician, pre-implantation genetics, cell and developmental biology. And you may ask why it matters. Uh, because um, it matters because aneuploid in its biological and clinical implications are very complex matters and true progress requires such collaboration. It also matters because academia in the United States is not allowed to use federal funding for human embryo research. In other words, NIH in the United States does not support this kind of research. And as a result, almost all of the groundbreaking advances uh, will have to come from independent centers. Now, continuing with the idea of building bridges, uh, I think there is the, uh, there is the um, aspect of stem cell. Uh, confirmation and stem cell progression of this kind of work. And I know you, you had some frustrations during the study and afterwards about 
uh, trophoblast stem cells and aneuploid stem cell lines, etc. Can you can you can you tell us where that uh, field stands, trophoblast stem cells, and, because they are key to really testing hypotheses that you may dis, you may generate from your work. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think the stem cells were um, really a critical aspect of the work. So, well, first of all, we were kind of lucky because trophoblast stem cells were described uh, a few years ago. It was two years ago. So this is something very, very novel that uh, we are doing, right? Um, and then when we described that Icadirin could be responsible of that phenotype, we thought a fantastic tool to have would be trisomy 16 human trophoblast stem cells, because now we can uh, if we would have them, we could uh, try to correct them by manipulating the levels of icadirin. However, that proved to be impossible. So it was completely impossible to derive uh, human trophoblast stem cells or even human embryonic stem cells. And I think this is a limitation that other researchers have uh, found. It seems to be very difficult to establish aneuploid uh, human stem cell lines from embryos. And there are even studies that have used aneuploid embryos to derive stem cells, and they ended up having euploid stem cell lines. Probably because during the culture, uh, if there is any euploid, originally euploid line in the embryo, those cells will proliferate more than the aneuploid, and eventually aneuploid cells uh, will die and the euploid will take over in the culture. And actually going back to what was discussed before in the previous paper, in all these studies, it has been shown that it's not a matter of correction, but a matter of selection. So euploid cells tend to win. In, in when you are trying to establish those stem cell lines. So yeah, this is very difficult and I think it's a limitation for the field because if we would have those aneuploid stem cell lines, we could mm, really try to correct them and do more mechanistic studies. Dagan, did you want to comment at all? Oh, well, um, only in as much as uh, to congratulate uh, you all on the study. I think it's a wonderful study. Um, it's nice to see uh, the sort of interface of clinical and also basic biology coming together there in what is, um, as Marta said, a real multidisciplinary study. So it's, it's a, a really attractive study from many aspects. Um, it's you know, nice to see the generation of this hypothesis about the role of e cadherin. And, um, and you know, for us who've studied aneuploidian embryos for many years, it's always been a question of, well, you know, what is the ultimate fate? Okay, we might know or guess what the final fate is some way down the line but you know how do they get there um you know how does implantation fail or how does an early miscarriage occur and what's the underlying uh, mechanisms going on um yeah it, it was interesting to see this uh, hypo proliferation of some of these aneuploid cells in the trifecta i mean personally i always imagine the trifecta but um, to be a more permissive tissue as far as aneuploidy mm -hmm. went um so uh you know, I, I, I don't know, Marta, whether that was any kind of surprise to you to see that um, actually aneuploidy seemed to be more detrimental in a sense in that tissue. Um, yeah, also given the work in the mouse previously from uh, Magdalena's uh, group showing the higher levels of apoptosis in the epi epiblast compared to the uh, trophectoderm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I guess another question I had really was, you know, obviously this platform is an extremely useful thing to use to look at these questions, but it is, I guess, quite artificial. And I, I was wondering, although it shows, uh, I guess, quite a good um, rec recapitulation of the morphological changes that you see in vivo, um, you know, 
how far do you think we you can take this platform? Uh, does yeah. does it have limitations? Do you think? Yeah. So first, to answer the the first question about the um, the specific phenotype of the trophoblast, yeah, we were very surprised. And actually, I'm going to link this to the second question. I think at the beginning we were worried that maybe we may see some kind of artifact that is not going to happen in vivo. So we were always very happy when we were able to corroborate clinical data in the in vitro system. So when I saw this defect in the trisomy 16 uh, embryos in the trophoblast, I thought, does it make sense? And actually found a paper showing that in cases where trisomy 16 is confined to the placenta, placentas weight less. So that means that actually, yeah, the cells are proliferating less and making a smaller placenta. So I was really glad to see that. Uh, but actually, yeah, of course, the system has limitations. This is a system at the end. is not the real thing, right? Um, so, I mean, what we've observed is that uh, the efficiency of the system decreases as development uh, progresses. So more embryos have like a nice organization at day nine, this decreases at day 11, but day 12, 13, most of them don't look good. So I think it's a good system to look at that early window of post-implantation, not necessarily going beyond that. Uh, one thing that we are struggling to see is the formation of the amnion, which forms very early um, when the embryos implant. Um, this is the tissue that will, of course, uh, surround the developing fetus and protect it. Uh, so we are not seeing that. Now there are um, methods that were based on our original paper in which uh, a gel has been included, kind of like to mimic the uterus and to make the system more 3D-like. And using this uh, modified version of the method, uh, it has been reported that the amnion is formed and embryos can develop a bit longer. So I think there is room for improvement, definitely, and to generate even more complex systems where we can potentially include cells from the uterine environment and really model this maternal uh, fetal interface. Yeah, it's a wonderful experimental tool, no doubt about it. Um, I guess in terms of the three discordant uh, embryos you got where they had a PGTA result suggesting an aneuploidy, and then later on you found something a little different, um, I, I guess an important thing to note is that one of those embryos um, doesn't suggest an incorrect PGTA result, but it's clearly mosaic with a mitotic non-disjunction, having a mixture of trisomy and monosomy of the mm -hmm. same chromosome, so still mm -hmm. fully abnormal. Mm -hmm. I guess also, uh, I, I don't know if you'd agree, but I imagine the experimental design uh, would also tend to, in a way, purify the embryo samples towards those that are more likely to be mosaic since those that are fully abnormal are less likely to to ever get to the point where you get to look at them uh, and so in a way the, the any few that are mosaic are more likely to be amongst your final set you look at yeah, yeah, you are absolutely right and this is something that I didn't mention during the presentation we had a very strict criteria so we only used embryos that reached the blastocyst stage on day five, we excluded all day six, and most of the embryos had a very high quality. So we are pre-selecting for a very specific subpopulation of embryos. And as you said, uh, because our criteria is so stringent, we are probably increasing the chances that there would be mosaics. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So I, I guess the only other question I had is, what next? You've got this amazing tool. I'm sure you're full of ideas. Uh, you know, what can we look forward to next from you? 
Well, I mean, uh, I guess what will be more interesting for this audience is uh, actually looking at mosaic embryos and what happens to aneuploid cells and whether we can follow them and see what is their fate in different tissues, in embryonic tissue versus extraembryonic tissues. And I think that would be really fantastic. Can't wait for that one, Marta. That would be super interesting. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much to all of you. This has been great. It's been an, almost an hour and a half. Um, we didn't really want to cut it short as long as the discussion was going and it was interesting as it has been. Um, I hope our audience enjoyed these presentations and discussions at, at least as much as I did. Big thank you to all of our speakers, again, especially those of you who are up at two in the morning, mm-hmm. as well as our audience, who is also awake pretty late, some of them. We hope to be doing this every couple months. So thank you so much for, for joining us and we'll see you next time. Thank you. This has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions and all things reproductive medicine. See you next week. Bye.